Good morning. Go ahead as you sit down and take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. There are Bibles on the seat backs in front of you if you need one of those. I think John is about 830-ish page in there. Um, What we're going to talk about in John chapter 1 this week, first of all, it's like 40 verses, so we got to get moving. Um, This week and next week, the passages we're going to be in are really like one week of Jesus's ministry. And, And the verses that we're looking at today, I can't even begin to tell you how much awesome truth is crammed into them. And we're not gonna touch on hardly any of it today. So there's lots for you as an individual and for you with your small group this week to dive into and explore more, okay? But we're gonna move quickly through this. So you ready? Here we go. John chapter one, we're gonna start in verse 19. The first thing that we're gonna see is the witness. The witness. It says this, verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem, the religious muscle, they sent it to him and they said, who are you? And he confessed and he didn't deny, but he confessed, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Nope. (laughs) Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Okay, that comes out. (laughs) And they asked him, they said, then why are you baptizing If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, and John answered and said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany East, across the Jordan, where John the Baptist was baptizing. All right, we're back to John the Baptist here, and he says these things. I'm gonna put them on the screen. He says these things about himself. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And I am so not worthy to even mess with the shoes of the person that's coming after me. Like John the Baptist here, he wants his identity and his role to be very clear. He's like, I'm just a voice. That's it. The one Isaiah prophesied about, which by the way, that's in Isaiah chapter 40. The one Isaiah prophesied about coming to make straight, to clear the way for the Lord. What what does that mean? Uh, John the Baptist cleared the way for Jesus by proclaiming and baptizing in preparation for Christ's coming. So we see in the other gospels that John called people to repent. To repent means to turn from something, to turn to something else. And so he called people to turn from their sins and instead to turn to God in faith and to trust him for the future coming of the Messiah, the deliverer, and avoid by doing that God's just judgment. And baptism was an outward expression of this repentance. So the witness, John the Baptist, he's like, I'm not the Christ, and I'm not either, (laughs) and neither are you. And sometimes that's just something really good to keep in front of ourselves as we go throughout our week. 
I'm not the Christ, the witness. The next thing that we see is this. We see the lamb, the lamb. Look down at verse 29. This is cool. Verse 29, the next day, see how he's progressing through this week. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hold on, John, another name for Jesus? Are you kidding me? How many names so far have we had for Christ? John just keeps heaping up these names, telling us more and more truth about the identity of Jesus. So, so why is this name significant? Okay, I think we have to ask a couple questions out of this. One, what are lambs for? And what does this name then tell us about who Jesus is? Okay, so first, what are lambs for? Lambs were the primary animals used in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And at this point, I think we're meant to see one primary theme about lambs. And it's this, it's the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, why? Why do I think that? Well, next week in chapter two, down in verse 13, they're gonna be celebrating Passover. So here's John the Baptist right before Passover going, behold the lamb. All right, then at the end of the gospel of John, we're gonna see how this lamb theme comes to a culmination in the life and death of Jesus Christ. So here, John, he's got at the beginning of his gospel and at the end of his gospel, these brackets that are the lamb of God that we are meant to see all of this through. So out of that, what's Passover? What's Passover, Nate? Go ahead and turn in your Bible to the left, almost all the way back to the beginning to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, it goes Genesis, Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. As you're turning, I'm gonna kind of summarize where we're gonna find ourselves here in Exodus chapter 12. This is taking place about 1,500 years before what we're talking about here in John. Uh, the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. The Lord calls Moses and he says, Moses, you're gonna go to Pharaoh. You're gonna tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So I'm gonna do a work of exodus of my people out of slavery. Oh, there's a lot of pictures there. It's like, I'm gonna do a work and you're gonna be my servant in it. So go to Pharaoh. So Moses goes to Pharaoh. He says, the Lord says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, don't care. Plague number one happens. He goes, Pharaoh, let my people go. Nope, plague. Pharaoh, let my people, nope, 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 nope. We're up to nine plagues, all right? We're about to go into the 10th plague. And the Lord says this, he says, every firstborn in Egypt is going to die. Just feel the weight of that for a moment. God says, in my just judgment, for my purposes, this plague is gonna hit Egypt and every firstborn will die. And he goes, and here's what I want you to do. And that brings us to Exodus 12. Look, at, look down there at verse number one. We'll read some of these, some of this passage. It says this, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you from here on out. 
Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse five, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month and when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse seven, then they shall take some of the blood from the lamb, put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. Verse 11, in this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet and with your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. Why? Because they're supposed to be ready because the Lord's gonna do something. He's gonna take them out. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Go down to verse 25. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised he will do, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped and worshiped. How do we summarize what's happening here? Here's here's what's happening. The blood from the lamb that was placed on the doorposts of the home, it was an obedient act of trust in the Lord as a, a picture and a reminder to us and to them that sacrifice is needed for salvation. Hebrews chapter nine says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the picture of the Passover lamb that the first century Jews would have been seen. That's what we're supposed to see here, okay? So if that's what the lamb was used for, what, what does this name tell us about Jesus? Here's what it tells us about Jesus. He is the lamb. He is the sacrifice that ends all other sacrifices. He is the sacrifice that all the sacrifices were meant to point to. He's the ultimate sacrifice for sin that will accomplish salvation for all who believe. Hebrews chapter 10, you'll see the verses on the screen behind me say this, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time one single sacrifice for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of God. This name indicates that Jesus is the lamb. He's the lamb provided by God. If you want to see uh, sometime uh, some things about provision of God with a lamb, go to Genesis chapter 22 and you see Abraham and Isaac there. But now Jesus is the lamb provided by God and he is without blemish, perfect. And this name indicates that he is going to die. He's gonna be our substitutionary sacrifice and he's gonna provide a way for eternal life through faith. But he doesn't tell us all of that right now. He just says the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he's gonna unpack it all through the rest of this book. Look down at verse 30 and let's keep reading. He says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, verse 30. This is he whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself, I didn't know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Verse 32, and John bore witness and said, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove. The spirit wasn't a dove. He was like a dove. He's looking for words to describe what he saw happen. The spirit descended from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is, is the son of God. So enter here, the Holy Spirit. So we've met already in John, the father, the son, and now we meet the spirit, the third person of our triune God. And here he, he descends on Jesus and not just descends. If you look there, he descends and he does what? He remains, or your translation might say he rests on him. There's an idea of permanence here. The spirit rests on Jesus and stays there. Why is this happening? A couple reasons. First, the spirit here, by his descending and resting on Jesus, confirms Jesus's identity as the, as the son of God. So the Old Testament is full of prophecies that pointed to who Jesus was going to be. Here's just one example. Prophesied in Isaiah 700 years before this happens. Isaiah 42 says this, behold my servant whom I'm uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. 700 years prior, the one my spirit descends on, that's the Messiah. Spirit confirms Jesus' identity. The other thing here is the Spirit shows. Spirit shows us Jesus' special relationship with the Spirit and now demonstrates that Jesus is the giver of the Spirit. If you look at verse 33, it's like, I didn't know him. The one that sent me to baptize with water said, the one whom the spirit descends on and remains, this is the one, Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So now Jesus is the one. When we come to him, when we follow him, he gives us his spirit. 
From the point that we receive Christ, when we believe in him, he baptizes us, he immerses us, he pours out his spirit on us. That's incredible. And we're gonna see all of the meaning of what that means for us as people that have been baptized in his spirit as we go, as we go through the rest of John. All right, the witness, the lamb, third thing, third thing we see here is now the followers, the followers of Jesus. I actually want us to see four things that the followers of Jesus receive. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna do this a little different. I'm just gonna put all the points on the screen and we're just gonna put them up there. Okay, these are the, these are the four things I hope we see for the rest of this chapter that the followers of Jesus receive a new path, a new life, a new mission, and a new anticipation, okay? And the reason I'm just putting them all up there is because I really want us to just kind of walk through this text now and then allow you as we go through just to connect those dots. Oh, there's the new life. Oh, that might be the, ope, ope. I'm saying ope, that's an Indiana thing, right? I just heard that, ope, nobody else. Like there, there's another connection. Wait, that's a new anticipation and just make those connections as we go through this, okay? All right, verse 35, let's keep going. The next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with his two disciples. We find out one of those disciples is Andrew. The other one is not named. That's why we believe that probably the other disciple here is the apostle John who's writing this because often he doesn't name himself. He calls himself the one that Jesus loved or just the one, or it's the one disciple that remains unnamed. So this is probably John and Andrew. Next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the lamb of God. I love this because you've got John's continued humility in this. Jesus shows up and he's like, Lamb of God, go follow him. And it's even a little bit like, here's his disciples just soaking up what John the Baptist is telling him. And he's like, guys, right there. Like, there's the lamb. Like, you wanna go with him? Stop spending your time with me. Verse 37. So the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and he saw them following and he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you'll see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Okay, we have two men here, probably John and Andrew, and they're just getting a complete reorientation of their lives in this. They were going this way, they were following John the Baptist. Then God shows up, literally. <laughs> and now they're like, and now we're going this way. Do you know, that still happens the same way for us as followers of Jesus. We're walking along in life, thinking we've got it all figured out, worshiping all the things that we wanna worship, making all our wise decisions, going after everything that will give us pleasure and joy, we think, in this world. And God shows up in our lives and he completely reorients us and sets us in a new direction. And now, now their focus becomes not following John the Baptist. Mm -mm. Something better is here. We are following Jesus. And I love Jesus' question to them. What are you seeking? 
what, what are you looking for, guys? Are you looking for a politician? Because that's not me. Are you looking for a revolutionary to lead you in victory over Rome? Not going to find that either. Are you looking for a new hobby? You're just looking for someone to give you a new advice? Looking for someone that'll promise you health, wealth, and prosperity. What are you seeking? Same question for us this morning. What are you seeking? What are you looking for? And I love these, these guys' answer. Initially, I thought it was kind of an odd answer. But then the more I looked at it, the more I saw what was happening here, their answer is, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? The word staying here could be also translated, where are you abiding? We'll see that again later in John. Where are you, where are you staying? We wanna be with you. We wanna learn more about you and from you. Would you teach us? Could we be your disciples? This is incredible because with Jesus's question, he highlights the fact that they don't even know what they're seeking at this point. All they really know to do is just follow Jesus. And then look at his response to them. He says, come, come, you'll see. You'll see, and by the way, he's not referring there to like, come on over, you'll see where I made my bed and whose house I'm staying in, although they are gonna see that. There's so much wrapped up in that. He's saying, come and see, follow me, step into a relationship with me. I can't tell you everything now. You just need to take this first step of faith. You can't even fathom what you will learn and see and be called to walking with me and in relationship with him, they will find, they will find their ultimate needs. And one day they'll be able to answer that question on what they're seeking a whole lot better than they could right there. Let's keep going. Look at verse 40. One of the two heard, who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we've found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So something happens in Andrew's life between the conversation in the first half of this paragraph to the second half of the paragraph. He has become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. So what's he do? He goes and gets his brother. And his brother, he brings him to Jesus. And I love this. Jesus, what's Jesus do? He renames him. I mean, who does that? Think about this for a minute. Imagine you brought somebody with you today and you're like, hey, come on. You did the come and see. Come and see, be part of a church, come here. You're like, hey, afterwards, like, hey, I want to introduce you to Nate. And he comes up and I see you walking halfway over and I'm like, you're Robert? Son of Robert, you'll be called Joe. <laughs> you'd be like, you'd be backpedaling. You'd be like, okay, I know I, I, I built up our church, but I don't think you should come here and I think I should leave. Like this has gotten really weird really fast. But Jesus does exactly that. Why? 
Look at this. Look at this. Look at what's happening here. Jesus is demonstrating that he knows his name now, which is pretty awesome. But he's also demonstrating he knows his future name. Peter will have a new life, a new rabbi, a new path, and now he will have a new name. The name Peter, Petros, it means rock. Peter was anything but a rock at this point in his life, which we'll find out. But his new name, it's a prediction of who Jesus will form him into. You see, Jesus not only knows who you were, he not only knows who you are now, he knows what he will make you into. And that is so hopeful, isn't it? Because sometimes it's like, I can't see it, Lord. I feel like I'm still wallowing in my sins and I'm struggling with this. And I'm like, I know you're with me and I know you're working in me, but I wanna be more like you. I need to be more like you. And he's like, listen, I know your new name. I'm the one that gave it to you. And you remember it from the beginning part of chapter one. He says, those who receive me, who believe in my name, I'll do what? I will call them children of God. That's your new name. And he's like, and you need to follow me and trust me and believe that I began a good work in you and I will bring it to completion. Hmm. That's what he's doing with Peter. Keep going, keep going, because I'm slowing down and running out of time. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip. Ooh, I like that. Notice the order of those words. He, Jesus, found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city, the same city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael. And he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Jesus finds Philip. He says, follow me. Philip does. And then in that following, Philip begins to connect the dots. And he's like, this is the one that the old covenant was pointing to, that the scriptures, that the law of Moses was pointing to. This is Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth. Verse 46, and Nathanael, Nathanael, by the way, we think Nathanael was probably the apostle Bartholomew that we see in the other gospels. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay, we can't just scoop by that. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nathaniel's like, I, I, I live in Cana. We find that out later. It's right up the road from Nazareth. I know Nazareth. I know that place. I know those people. Ain't no Messiah coming out of Nazareth. You ever done that? You ever thought that way? 
said something like that? I have. I did it this week. I saw someone, complete stranger. I assigned them to a category in my mind. And then I assumed things about them based on that category. It was wrong. It's not forceful enough. It was wicked. And I'm so grateful that the Lord in that moment confronted me with it so that I could do business with him. And then in his sovereignty and his wisdom and his humor, he decides he's gonna arrange that that person and my person's path will cross so that he can continue to demonstrate with me how wrong my category was. Who of you stereotyped, dismissed, who have you crinkled your nose up at and avoided? Who have you denied grace to that you've been shown? Can anything good come from that side of town? Can anything good come from that apartment complex, that socioeconomic category, whichever end of the spectrum you're talking about? Can anything good come from that people group or that church or that ethnicity, that profession. Can anyone good possibly ever come from that political party? Can anything good come from someone who struggles with that sin? Church, we have got to search our hearts with the help of the Spirit of God and each other to root out sinful prejudice so that we can be quick to repent and so that we can ask our God to change us so that we will see people as he sees them made in his image and no more deserving of grace than I am. Maybe you're here, you found yourself on the other side of those comments and those thoughts and maybe even at times you've begun to wonder, can anything good come from my side of town? Can anything good come from me? Nay, I'm one of those despised people from that despised place. And if that's you here today, I hope, I hope, I hope this could be comfort and an encouragement to you that Jesus, our Savior, the Word become flesh, the Lamb of God, he chose to live and to grow up in and to work and be among and from one of those despised places. He was one of those despised people. And hear him say to you this morning, I'm from your side of town. And whoever, whoever you are and wherever you're from, and no matter how much you've been despised, 
Jesus says, I know. And I love you. Follow me. Notice, looking back down there at verse 46 in the end of it, notice Philip's gentle response. He echoes Jesus' response to Andrew and John. He just says, Nathaniel, come and see. Come see for yourself. And notice too, notice how the gospel is spreading here. The followers of Jesus are becoming the witnesses for Jesus. Andrew goes to his brother. Philip goes to his friend. They're all from the same community. They're going first and foremost to their immediate circles, which are their friends and their family. So I, would, I wanna ask for a raise of hands here real quick. Um, how many of you came to Jesus Christ through, through the witness somehow of a family member, whether that was a parent or a sibling or a, or a cousin or a step-parent or something, came, came to know Jesus through the witness of a family member or a friend? Raise your hands. You can put them back down. That's incredible. Listen to me, that's the great commission. That's our call as witnesses. I think sometimes we can get so nervous to be witnesses when we hear things like, we wanna permeate the west side of Indianapolis with the hope of the gospel. And then we're all of a sudden like discouraged because we're not seeing 15 people a day saved in the Starbucks drive-thru. <laughs> Listen to me, I hope people get saved in the Starbucks drive-thru. And I believe it can happen. You know why? We serve a God that still works miracles. That's why. We still serve a God that when he chooses, when he pleases, he can use the witness of his people and he can reach down and he can soften hard hearts and he can open blind eyes. And he can draw to himself and he can save. And he will do that, all right? But, but hear me, you can be part of spreading gospel hope by faithfully saying, Come and see to those that God has placed in your life. Come and see. Let me walk with you. Let's just consider Jesus. Come on, come and see. Let's, let's talk over dinner. Come on, let's look at scripture together. We're in John. Let's walk through John together. Come on, I just wanna introduce you to Jesus. Come with me to my church. Like we're not gonna embarrass you. We're not gonna ask you a bunch of crazy questions. We just want you to come and see and consider. Notice, that's how the gospel is powerfully spreading amongst these early disciples of Jesus. Let's keep going. I'm already out of time. Verse 47, we're moving fast. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and he said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. And Nathanael said, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Okay, what's, what's happening here? All right, I'm just being honest with you that the predominant view here of what's going on is that Jesus, when he says in verse 47, behold an Israelite indeed who, in whom there's no deceit, it's almost like a compliment of sorts to Nathaniel. Like you're truly a man of integrity. You're honest, you're straightforward. And then it's followed by him miraculously seeing him doing something under the fig tree. All right, that is the predominant view. I don't buy it. I just don't, okay? And here's why. Look down at verse 49. And we see Nathaniel proclaiming, Rabbi, son of God, king of Israel. 
Something has happened in this short conversation that has taken Nathaniel from being snarky, prejudiced, and doubting to belief. I, I think I, where I'm at is I'd read it a little bit more like this. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see Nathaniel. Jesus sees Nathaniel come and behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. How you know me before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree? I saw you. There's something powerful going on in here. And it's what I think Jesus is doing. I think he's drawing attention to something only he would know that's down in the depths of Nathaniel. And this isn't just a, hey, I miraculously saw you sitting under a fig tree somewhere. This seeing him under the fig tree is a sight that penetrates all the way to the core of who Nate is. And in this moment, I think he's humbling Nathaniel, confronting him, not with his worthy character, but with his sin that he sees. But either way, the point is, Jesus knows him and he knows us inside and out as only the son of God could. And I don't know about you, but I find that both terrifying and comforting because he sees it all. And yet he loves me and he saves me. And he calls me to follow him just like he does you. Verse 50, and then we're done. I promise. Verse 50, Jesus said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Oh, you'll see greater things than these. And he will, in the next chapter, we'll see some of those. Verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see the heavens opened and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. If you wanna do some more study on this, there's two Old Testament passages that he's referring to in this. Uh, Genesis 28 is where Jacob's ladder, Jacob's vision of the ladder to heaven is. And Daniel chapter seven is where the Messiah is referred to by the title Son of Man, which Jesus, by the way, takes and assigns to himself, which is interesting. What he's saying in this is he is the ladder to heaven. He is the ladder that will reconcile and give access to God through his life, through his death and his resurrection. He's saying that he is the way to God. Will you follow him? close like this, just like those original followers of Jesus were meant to hear in this passage him inviting us to come and see, inviting us to stop going the way that we're going that leads to destruction, instead to turn and to follow him. And he gives us a new name and a new life and a new identity, his child. And he leads us in in right paths, not easy paths. He leads us in the right ones. And he will teach us his truth by his spirit because when when we place our trust in him, he actually gives us his spirit. And then he gives us a new mission that starts with those that he's already placed in our path. And then we get to invite them to come and see And then he promises that when we follow him and when we trust him and when we orient our whole lives in pursuit of him, we too will see greater things. 
We will see greater things about him and in relationship with him and on mission for him. And those greater things that we will see as his followers will extend indefinitely into eternity as we see the greater things of who he is forever. Come and see. Follow Jesus in new paths and in new life with a new name. Oh, Father, you are so good. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Lord, thank you for the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus, for being the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. For being the way to God, to reconciliation with him, for joy and relationship with you forevermore. Lord, help us as we go out from here Lord, by your spirit in us that we've been immersed in, would you continue to make us into your image? Would you continue to help us to trust you that you have promised that when you make us your child, you will complete your work in us, forming us increasingly moment by moment, little by little across this life into your image. Lord, thank you for that promise. May we cling to that promise as we pursue you, that you are doing your work in us. And then help us, Lord, as we as your followers seek to follow you, but now be a witness to others who we want to follow you, Lord. Would you go before us? Would you help us to know when to say, come and see? And would you open blind eyes to see your beauty through our faithful witness, Lord? We need you. We love you. You are incredible in your precious name. Amen.